Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. Hello and welcome to Star Diary, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Star Diary from the team behind BBC Sky Night magazine and the Radio Astronomy podcast. Um, Each month uh, in this new series, we're going to be taking a look at what to see in the night sky over the coming weeks, where you should be looking, where to point your telescope and other uh, important dates for your stargazing calendar. Um, And I'm joined by our reviews editor, astronomy expert and all-round legend, Mr. Paul Money. (laughs) Hello, Ian. Hello there. Nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks for joining me in the podcast. Um, I have to say, um, I'm, I'm excited about this new series and I'm really looking forward to you know chatting to you more over the coming year about, about what to see in the night sky. I'm really excited about this because uh, this is the sort of thing I used to do a lot on the radio, local radio. I'd go in once a month and uh, talk about these sort of things, what you could see in the night sky in the coming month. So, uh, yeah, so uh, hopefully I, I won't come over as boring and silly, you know, but uh, yes, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, thank you for asking me. No, no worries. I mean, you're you're definitely the, the person on the team with the most um, practical astronomy and stargazing experience. Um, so I was going to actually set off just by asking you, you know, for how long do you think you've been looking up at the night sky as, as a practical astronomer? And, and, and how did you first get interested in it? Uh, as a practical astronomer, around about 1980, um, possibly even a couple of years earlier that, but without really knowing a lot of what I was doing. Um, but I, I've always been um, into space. I mean, when I started, it, I was always inspired by, I mean, definitely Star Trek, you know, the original series. And uh, But uh, Thunderbirds, and one of my favourites was Thunderbird 3. I, I, like, I love Thunderbird 2. I've got models of them around the blooming room here at the moment and um, you know uh, and I've got one on order for the Thunderbird 3 for, for my birthday soon so <laughs> I'm excited by that oh, how sad am I but uh, it was the space vehicles certainly you know and Fireball XL5 things like that and Lost in Space uh, all those really helped to inspire me and then it carried on a lot of them were the Jerry Anderson series of course obviously with Thunderbirds and Fireball XL5 and then uh, later with Captain Scarlet etc and then UFO and uh, Space 19 1999. Um, so yes, there was a lot that inspired me. And I was very lucky. I lived in a, a little village uh, where we literally had around about six or seven houses at most. So there was virtually no light pollution. We're on the edge of the Lincolnshire Wold. And the skies were wonderfully dark during the winter. So uh, I had a great view of the night sky, sort of wide open spaces sort of thing. So uh, it all helped to inspire. But it didn't really all come together until I got my job at uh, Boston, Marks and Spencer's. Sadly, they've 
closed the store now. But um, it was that that I was walking around Boston um, doing a, an errand for the uh, the chairman. It was well, actually, he was the uh, manager of the company, but uh, of, of the store. But he was also on the local board of commerce, and uh, they were going to do a bypass for Boston, and so he wanted people to go around with leaflets. So I got the job as I was the newbie at the store, and I saw a poster for Boston Astronomical Association, and I was very shy. I know, I know, I'm still <laughs> am really, but I was very shy then. I wouldn't say boo to a goose. So I took a friend to the meeting. Uh, really enjoyed it. We both joined. He he lasted three months. I ended up on the committee within six months, as you do, don't you? And um, and it took off from there because I met the right people to encourage me, which is why I'm always a great advocate for joining your local society because they are the people who will help to inspire you. You'll meet the people who can guide you in the right direction. And I certainly got guided in the right direction. Uh, he's, he's no longer with us, sadly, but uh, John, uh, he was, uh, John Hazelwood is brilliant sort of thing. He got me eight my first subscriptions to an astronomy magazine, which in those days, it was Sky and Telescope. You near enough had no other competition sort of thing. It was American. I still do subscribe. I know, shock, horror. But I'm still, <laughs> I mean, I've got two skies, Sky and Telescope and Sky at Night. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sticking to the skies. But uh, but that, you know, by by being having the right mentor to, to push me in the right direction, which is one of the reasons why I like to do the same for other people as well now. Uh, so that really got me started. And of course, once I knew what to do with the telescope and where to point it, uh, I just love looking at the night sky. So it, it became second nature. That sort of brings us on nicely to February 2021, because uh, it's, well, it's a new year uh, and a new month. Um, what are you going to be looking forward to, to observing this month? Well, there's quite a few conjunctions. Now, conjunctions can involve a variety of objects. I mean, you, you can have sort of planets and stars. You can have planets and moon. You can have moon and stars. You can have a combination of all three. Sometimes you even get deep sky objects uh, involved as well. So uh, that's one of the things we'll, we'll concentrate on uh, over the coming months. But there's other things as well, so we can come to them in a short while. But let's kick off with the really the first, the night of the 1st of February into the 2nd of February. And look towards, it's late night, admittedly, sort of thing, you know, around about 10 o'clock, the moon's rising over in the east. And you'll see, not long after that, if you give it an hour, say to about 11, you'll see that below it is Porima. Uh, that's uh, uh, Gamma Virginis. And so you've got the moon above Porima. So that's a lovely conjunction. So you see this star sparkling below the moon. And uh, so these are the conjunctions. And what you do is, you, as you watch during the night, the moon creeps gradually closer and closer to Porima because obviously the moon's in orbit around the Earth and it does move against the background stars. It amazes people that you can actually see the motion of the moon if you leave it for a few hours. You know, you can actually watch it, especially when it's close to a bright star like this. But Parma's particularly interesting as well because it's actually a, a very tight double star. So I always like to use things like conjunctions as a guide to interesting objects in the sky that you might not have actually looked at before. So uh, you do need a telescope, there's no doubt about that, because it is tight. It's about three to four arc seconds separation, so they're quite a tight double. In fact, Parma um, is, uh, is a proper true binary star. So there are two components going around each other. And for many years, they were really, really tight. You struggled to separate them, uh, you know, even with advanced 
amateurs with their telescopes. But it's been opening up ever since. So uh, it's now a good time, in actual fact, to look at Porimer. So there you are. You've got the guide to it. There's the moon. If you don't know where Porimer is, uh, use the moon on the 1st and the 2nd sort of thing of uh, February, and you can actually find Porimer from that. But it's a lovely conjunction now. I love these sort of conjunctions. I think they're perfect. So if we go on from that, if it, the trouble with some of these... They're in the early hours of the morning. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, we can't avoid it really sort of thing. But, uh, you know, it, it's, astronomy is an all-night subject, you know. <laughs> there is no bedtime for astronomy sort of thing because especially if you're a solar observer, of course you're a solar observer, you can't wait for it to become daylight. But uh, a lot of events do occur in the early morning. So, But I find these are really interesting if you've got an early morning job. Or if, or say you you like taking your dog, and yes, I do know some people who've taken their cats for walks as well. <laughs> Honest really? sort of thing, yeah, yeah, taking the cat for a walk sort of thing. I, they don't do it locally, but I, I do know one or two friends who say they take their cat for a walk as well on a cat lead. Uh, okay, but uh, you know, but that, it gives you. I, I've often had people say to me when I did the radio uh, spots, you know, what was that bright star this morning I saw while I was walking the dog? It, it, it the moon was right next to it, and of course, usually I could say, oh yes, it's and such. And so on the 6th of February, you've got the moon, a thick crescent moon, above Antares. Now, Antares is in Scorpius. Now, it'll be low down. It's in the southeast. So it's well worth having a look at that. And again, Antares is a nice orange star. It is a, a double. It is a binary system, but the companion is really, really close and almost lost in the glare, actually, of Antares itself. But it's still a, a bright orange star, and it's called the rival of Mars, in. Because oh, it's okay. an orange colour, and when Mars is ever close to it, we always say, compare the colours. Uh, I wouldn't bother with the moon, because <laughs> we know what colour the moon is, sort of thing. It's a bit bland <laughs> compared with Antares, but, you know, well worth having a look at on the uh, 6th of February. Now, that's sort of like around about, say, 6 o'clock-ish in the morning. The sky will still be reasonably dark, but there is a bit of a challenge, and uh, I didn't warn you about this one. I thought, well, I'll, I'll throw it in, because it's a real, real challenge, and you have to be extremely careful we've got the conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. This is in the early morning sky. This is actually really, really difficult because it's in a bright sky only a few minutes before the sun actually rises. And so you have to be extremely careful. Now, this is actually on the 11th of February, but a few days earlier, on the 6th, the same morning that you look for the moon and Antares, it's actually next to Saturn. Now, Saturn is really hard. It's a lot fainter. But again, you have the same problem. You've got to do it before they rise, before before the sun rises, because it's very, very dangerous with the sun obviously you don't want to be sweeping the sky with a telescope and then catch a, a glimpse of the sun through the telescope with your unaided eye so i would a lot of people tend to wait until they've risen into the daytime sky and you use a go-to telescope just put the coordinates in and bang there they are in the eyepiece uh, so uh, you don't need to sweep them up so on the 6th then we've got jupiter and uh so we've got saturn and venus and then on the 11th we've got jupiter and venus now jupiter and venus are bright so they will be a lot easier to see as they rise. So hopefully you'll be able to see them again low in the southeast. Have a look out for them. But they are a challenge and it's one of the things you really have to be confident that you can do it without actually getting a view of the sun. 
Um, jumping ahead, on the 16th of February, we have a really close encounter with New Piscium and the Moon. And this is really close. I mean, this is within sort of like, not quite an occultation, but quite close. So, uh, you know, less than the distance of the size of the Moon itself. So it gives you an idea how close they actually are. And so it's well worth having a look out for it. But in actual fact, there's not just that, because uh, a short while later, in actual fact, we've also got Mars and a star called Botin. Now, Botin is Delta Aries or Delta Arietus. And the thing about this, again, the distance between Mars and Botin is actually about the width of the moon. So it's a really, this is a good one for a small telescope. Binoculars will show it, no doubt, but a small telescope will bring it out a lot better and you'll then really see the orange colour of Mars. Sadly, of course, Mars is getting smaller now in the telescope, so uh, it's actually not as detailed as it was back in last October when it was at opposition. But it's always well worth having a look at it, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I love looking at Mars. Um, I've got ginger hair, so I always think it's my planet, you see. So red hair, red planet. Uh, yeah, a few friends do think I do come from Mars, but we won't go into that now. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you think it's sort of, um, it's, it's also worth checking out Mars because it's it's sort of due to get worse and worse as the year goes ahead. Like, would you sort of say, you know, this is your last chance to see Mars? Is, is, is that sort of the way you, you would look at it? Um, we have actually got Mars for a few months yet because Mars is a bit of an oddity because of its orbital speed. It keeps ahead of the sun for quite a while. So it manages to linger in the twilight sky for the next few months. But in a dark sky, you've only got a month or two left whilst it's in a really dark sky. And after that, it'll start to get lower and lower in the evening sky. Um, and of course, then you've also got the added uh, complication that the nights are beginning to get lighter as well. So the two will actually meet. So eventually Mars will succumb to the bright twilight. But we've got it for a few months yet, sort of thing. But I say when it has a close encounter with a bright star like this, it's, it's a good another guide to a star that you probably never looked at before. Um, you can see it with the naked eye, Boton, Delta Arietus, but, you know, it's one of those things, how many times do you actually look at it? So uh, this is a good chance using Mars to actually look at it in a little bit more detail. Now, coming up, the next night, we've got a whole sequence of events. It's one of those things that sometimes they come, you know, you, you wait, <laughs> like buses, you, yeah. you wait for ages sort of thing and you hardly have anything happening. So you can go several days in a month and nothing happens and then suddenly you get a whole sequence. So we had that on the 16th and actually on the 17th, the moon is directly below the planet Uranus. Now, Uranus is one of those whereby it's just about naked eye if you have a really dark sky and no light pollution sort of thing. So that really helps. So a good chart will actually show it. And of course, the monthly chart in the magazine will actually show that quite well. Um, so we've got a thick crescent moon on the 17th directly below Uranus. Then it's actually the moon is then below Mars on the 18th. So that's the 17th for Uranus, the 18th for Mars. And of course, Mars is just a little, has moved on a little bit from Delta Arietus, Botin. And so you've got the moon next to Mars or just below it on the 18th. Um, but it's getting even better because on the 19th, it actually sort of forms a, a shallow triangle with the star cluster, the Pleiades, Messier 45, and Aldebaran. Aldebaran is the red eye of the bull of Taurus. Although I was thinking, it looks some pale orange personally sort of thing i don't think it looked particularly i don't think it looks particularly fierce myself sort of thing you know so uh, i always think it's a bit misnamed 
it's not quite as catchy though, is it? The the pale orange of Thomas. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. The red eye of the bull sounds much more uh, dramatic, <laughs> doesn't it? And of course, Aldebaran is part of the Hyades cluster. So uh, we've got a chance here to see the moon actually uh, in uh, the cl- The problem with the moon here is that, of course, the moonlight, it's, it's virtually at half phase. So it's at first quarter phase in actual fact. So the moonlight starts to drown out a lot of the fainter stars. But you will see the V of the Hyades star cluster. You'll see the orange of Aldebaran and you'll have the pale cluster Messier 45. See how many stars you can see. It's always a challenge, isn't it? Now, you really mm. do need the moon out of the way to see the most. But the seven main stars, you, you could pick up with the, the naked eye in moonless conditions. And uh, my maximum was 11. That was the best I managed to do. Uh, I was talking to Pete Lawrence some years ago about how many. And of course, uh, Pete saw 15. Um, <laughs> he, he would, wouldn't he? But that's not the record. Somebody apparently in Arizona uh, managed right. to see 18 with the naked eye. But the problem we've always said is, how do you prove that? Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't look through somebody else's eyes. And even no. if they draw them, there's always the chance. They're so well known. You could have actually memorize the positions but but i'm an honest person and to be fair i i now wear glasses and i have to say it's dropped down i don't see 11 on really good nights i get i have seen nine uh so uh, with the moon below it it'll wash out a lot of the faint stars but that makes a nice triangle a great photographic um uh, sort of experiment here because you've got the bright moon so to get the phase of the moon detail the moon you've got to take one exposure and then you've got to do a different exposure to get the actual stars in the background showing up well. So uh, nice way of combining them to get the two in one. And then on the 20th, sort of the day after, you've got the moon to the upper left of Aldebaran. So as I say, it, it's like buses. Well, in this case, it's four things. You've got you know, Uranus, then Mars, then the Pleiades and Aldebaran, and then Aldebaran uh, with the moon passing. But that's the point about the moon. It, you know, it, it goes around the Earth and it gives us a whole range of events taking place each month. It's a reliable source of events for us to observe <laughs> yeah and that's that's also the beauty of those those conjunctions with the moon it's just that you know pretty much everyone can everyone can find the moon in the night sky provided it's there to see and if you can use it as a jumping off point do you know do a bit of star hopping um you know it, it can sort of lead you to planets and constellations and, and stars that you might otherwise have sort of struggled to see exactly it, it is i mean i i do joke with people when i say you know when you're observing these things if you can't find the moon it must be cloudy or it hasn't risen yet so yeah. uh, do, do something else sort of thing but if it's a clear sky the moon is the key it will guide you to some of these things uh so i find it a great way of finding fainter targets that we probably wouldn't normally see or as you say you know stars that you wouldn't normally uh, spot or, or bother with. Uh, and another of these happens on February the 22nd, because on that Tuesday, uh, the moon lies really close to the star Mibsuta, which is Epsilon Geminorum, and that's a regular. Now, the moon's orbit does change over the course of 18 years. So this is you know, a, a sequence whereby the, this year and last year, uh, we were having these series of close encounters with the star. In fact, at one point, it was actually a Colton uh, Mibsuta. And so, you know, but after this, what you 
you'll find is the moon's orbit, the tilt, the way how it moves, the, the precession of the orbit. Um, the gradually, the, the gaps between the encounters will get larger and larger until you, you don't really use it as an encounter with Metsuta again. So we find that over the course of 18 years, uh, the lunar cycle, that you actually um, have a range of different objects and sometimes it's closer and then other times it gets further away. So this is the time to catch things like Mipsuta and, of course, Botin as well, because in a few years' time, the moon will be a long way from them in actual fact and won't be quite as obvious when it passes it. We've mentioned um, conjunctions and occultations so far in the podcast. And I thought it might be worth actually just taking a break and going through those those two different terms. People maybe not maybe not know what, what the difference is between the two of them. Would, would, would you be able to, would you be able to um, explain, Paul? Yes, the uh, conjunctions um, are basically... Now, conjunction is a funny word because if we go strictly by definition, it should be when two objects share the same right ascension in the sky. Um, That's the strictest definition, and usually when they're quite close. Um, But uh, us amateur astronomers, we've tended to use conjunction to mean any close encounter between any objects that are moving against the background sky. So with a normal conjunction for us sort of thing, we usually say a conjunction, the official conjunction in RA, but sometimes you find a closer conjunction when it's probably a day or two later when they're actually closer. So they may not share necessarily the same right at ascension. Uh, And so, you know, that's the idea about conjunctions. And they are the most common uh, sort of uh, event that we can actually see. Um, Now, I'm getting older, my memory's going, what was the second thing? (laughs) Uh, Occultation. Occultations, thank you. I I told you I'm getting older. The point about (laughs) occultations is that, um, you know, where the moon passes in front of a star, that is an occultation. Um, So we see the star disappear behind the the lunar disk. Um, Now, depending on whether the occultation is on the bright or the dark limb, depends on how it makes it easy or hard. If it's on the bright limb, then the star seems to sort of disappear but merge into the bright limb, you know, whereas if it's the dark limb, it's absolutely abrupt. Because there's no atmosphere around the moon, the star literally vanishes in a split second, in a fraction of a second, actual fact. And in fact, that has been used to discover whether the star is binary or not, whether it's got a companion, because often it'll disappear and then there'll be a faint one next to it and then it'll disappear. So so that's been used to actually discover um, binary companions of stars using lunar occultations. And so when it's on the bright limb, it's a lot harder to see because you've got the bright limb interfering. The reappearance on the other side, again, you know, the reappearance sort of thing, you have to be very, you have to work out where you're looking because if it's on the dark limb, um, again, it's quite abrupt because suddenly a star will appear next to the moon and you go, wow. And a blink and you'd nearly miss the reappearance. Whereas if it's on the bright limb, then you find it's a lot harder to de- you know, determine that very point where it actually emerges behind because you've just got this bright disc and then suddenly you've got a dot next to it. And you take a few seconds, hang on, was that there a few moments ago? I wasn't sure. Whereas if it's on the dark limb, it is quite abrupt mm. and quite, quite startling. And I say quite beautiful as well. I think the best occultations though, and they're rare is when you get a planetary occultation. And I was lucky enough many years ago, I can't remember the year now, but I actually got Saturn disappear behind the moon and I got it reappearing behind the moon. And to see the last bit of the rings disappearing behind the moon and then to see the first rings appear on the other side about an hour and a half or so later, it it was just unreal. 
you know, it, it, it just looked surreal. It didn't, you thought, is this, is this the real life or is it just fantasy? Oh, I'm going to break into song now. But, uh, you know, but it, it was, it was, it was, a, you can't put into words. I think that's why I'm struggling because it was just such an amazing sight. Even the word amazing doesn't quite cover it. So, you know, seeing events like that, I'm still excited by star occultations, but, uh, you know, but planetary occultations, I think, are also quite, quite something to behold. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I'm, I'm sure there's not many people who could who could say that they've seen that, Paul. I mean, that, you know, things phenomenon like that must must make for amazing uh, astrophotos if you can manage to capture them. Yes, they did, and I, I managed to capture that using a webcam and the telescope I was operating at the time, which I think might have been the ten-inch telescope. And um, you know, and the the thing about these is sometimes you've got to make sure you make time to look yourself. It's a bit mm-hmm. like solar eclipses. You know, uh, we get lots and lots of dramatic pictures sent in when there is a solar eclipse. Um, but one of the things we did when me, Pete, and others went out with Amiga holidays to do the the Turkish eclipse back in two thousand and six. One of the things we made a point of saying was make sure you look because it is very easy to get carried away with the photography and keep looking at your camera and then you actually miss the very thing you've gone to see um mm. because it you know again it's awe-inspiring just to see it with the naked eye but uh, yes capturing it on uh, as an image or a sequence of images is is another thing and and that's why we've got such an amazing hobby really because you can you can do it on all levels you can do it from naked eye binoculars to a telescope you can do it sort of thing literally just visually observing or imaging it in a whole range of ways so uh, many of these targets sort of thing you know are worth capturing on as an image if you can but uh, i always think you should make the effort to try at least see them and i've got one final one if we could sort of thing just to cover it's again another challenge and it's in the more i'm sorry but it's in the morning sky yes you're gonna have to set your <laughs> alarms for this again it's around about 6 30 in the morning just before sunrise and it involves good old Jupiter and Saturn again, but this time they'll be joined by Mercury. And on the 25th, it forms a bit of a shallow triangle. It'll be the apex of a triangle between Saturn and Jupiter as well. Now, Saturn will be hard, as I've mentioned earlier, because it's in the twilight, uh, but it's well worth having a go at. And then on the 28th, a few days later, Mercury will be a lot closer to Jupiter as well, because Mercury will be dropping back. So well worth trying for them, but again, be careful, be safe, make sure you don't observe after the sun's risen because obviously you might sweep up the sun instead. Yeah, I mean, we've sort of mentioned that a few times in the podcast, and I, but I, I do think it is sort of worth hammering that home, isn't it? And even if it's sort of you want to try this but you're not really sure, um, it's probably worth not... Not not taking the risk, would you say, Paul? Just just you really need to know what you're doing, don't you? I would honestly say, you know, leave it to those who are far more advanced or far more experienced. Um, but then I, I also sometimes think, well, how do you get the experience? You know, if you don't do it, you know, uh, the golden rule is to be prepared, and the slightest sign of a glimmer of the sun, stop observing, um, stop sweeping with the telescope or binoculars. You know, just don't risk it. But uh, once you become adept at doing it, it, it be, I wouldn't say it becomes second nature because you always need to be on your toes 
just aware, just in case. Even the most experienced can make a simple mistake. You know, mm-hmm. perhaps you put in the the into the go to telescope wrong, or you're sweeping along the rise and you've gone a little bit further than you expected, and the time's slightly later than you realise because you get carried away. Because it's very easy to get carried away observing and mm-hmm. completely forget, and you know you, you get so inv- in, involved in it that you don't realise the sky. I've had times when I've been observing the early morning sky, carrying on observing through the telescope, and then I've stepped back and thought, blooming heck, the sky's light. And the sun's getting close to rising. You, you're just so involved in looking at the object. It's usually been a planet when I've been doing that, the moon, um, that uh, you get carried away, you know, so you don't actually realise how light the sky's got. You know, then you think, shucks, I should be in bed. <laughs> Where did that night go? <laughs> yeah, no, no rest for astronomers, Paul. There isn't, no, that's true. And of course, now we've got solar observing and and specialised filters and eyepieces to image the sun. I mean, when do you sleep? I know, there isn't actually any need to go to bed anymore. We're we're looking one way, this is our work, isn't it? So, you know, we've got an excuse. I always say to the neighbours, I've got an excuse, you know, so I can go to bed during the daytime. What's your excuse? And a lady across the road wouldn't turn around and say, well, I'm a nurse, so, you know, and I can work all sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, I I'm with you in that respect. Uh, and that did explain why our curtains were sometimes closed during the daytime as well. <laughs> One doesn't like to ask, you know, these things. But, uh, you know, but yes, it's it, we can choose when, being self-employed, I can choose when to go to bed and whatnot. And uh, uh, I just have to make sure my wife Lorraine is all right sort of thing because yeah. many of you know I, I care for her. But, uh, you know, both both lovingly and literally as well. But, yeah. uh, you know, but, you know, I make sure she's all right, but uh, she's quite happy she... Because she gets a nice peaceful time, doesn't she? Uh, yeah. I go up and then spend a, a few hours in bed. She gets a bit of peace and quiet. <laughs> Fantastic, Paul. Well, um, yeah, it looks like it's going to be, um, well, first of all, it looks like it's going to be a good year, 2021, but also it looks like February is going to be a good month for getting outside and looking up at the night sky. And, you know, thanks for coming on the podcast and for, you know, sharing your expertise and enthusiasm with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me along. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Diary podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Spotify or Acast. Acast.